All right, guys, it's time for the next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats, covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Sam, a.k.a. Prep Medic. He's a flight paramedic and special operations response team member. Sam runs Prep Medic, a channel that is designed to bring medical preparedness to YouTube. He hopes to use his experience as a critical care flight paramedic, reserve deputy sheriff and tactical medic to help first responders and civilians alike implement evidence-based medical care, select gear and gain insight into the EMS and law enforcement protocols. And now, let's get to the interview. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Now, I'm a major fan of your show. I've followed you on Instagram like a stalker. I love your YouTube videos. You know, where else can you find out how to tie a tourniquet and also find out how chicken tikka masala mimics vomit in this action? <laughs> There's all these amazing things you do. But for people who don't recognize your name, could you maybe give a quick introduction? How would you define who you are and, you know, why you're so well known? Oh man, that's a that's a pretty big uh, existential question. But uh, my name's Sam. Um, I'm the uh, founder of Prep Medic, which is a, a social media site for you know first aid, EMS um, related topics, emergency medical services, you know ways to you know save a life, you know as an everyday civilian, but also bring people into this realm. Um, I professionally am a critical care flight paramedic uh, and have. Uh, about five years experience as a SWAT paramedic and doing search and rescue, dive rescue, and some other um, medical special operations within the Northern Colorado region. So been a, been a paramedic for uh, about 12 years. Uh, some of that was spent as a SWAT paramedic in Iowa as a, a sworn officer there um, doing that. And then this flight role is a relatively new role for me in the last two years, but still getting my feet under me. And then through all of that, been running uh, prep medics to try to get, you know, just more people involved and more people kind of ready on the streets to intervene and, you know, help those around them. I love it. I love how you make it sound like it's just a normal job. But when you watch your videos, the level of intensity and the stuff you do, you know, like just the snippet videos like we watch and it's like, bloody hell, this guy does amazing things. He, you know, like when the shit's flying, the bullets are flying. Everybody else runs one way. You're going in with them to to look after people. You know, you're changing how law enforcement are looking at you know like first first aid care for people rather than having to wait for EMS after the police secure the scenes and things like that. Was that the inspiration for the channel? Was once you started doing these kind of help videos and tools for police officers, you realized how inadequate a lot of people are for first aid care and with casualties, etc. 
Yeah, you know, it was really multifaceted for me um, because in EMS, you know, we see people, you know, we, we see victims every day, uh, you know, whether that's victims of uh, heart disease or victims of violence or, you know, circumstance, we see a lot of that. And then at the same time, we are also struggling to recruit. We have huge shortages within our ranks. So I kind of combined two desires in, in that realm. Number one is as a paramedic, I have never gone to a cardiac arrest um, or an arterial bleed that survived when they didn't have bystander intervention before I got there. Um, so, you know, I have never solo, like gotten on scene, done compressions first and had the person walk out of the hospital. That's, that's never happened to me in almost 12 years uh, in this realm. And then the, so I, I really wanted to give people the tools to intervene because it doesn't take much. And I'm sure we'll get into that in this video, but it doesn't take much to save somebody's life. And you can do most of it with the shirt that you have on you and your hands, if you know some CPR and know what to look for. You know, the other part of that and what really like was the impetus to start the channel was, you know, we had gotten back from, you know, in our realm, what's a really cool call, you know, we had an entrapment, we got to push a lot of meds, do a lot of really advanced things. Um, and we had nobody applying for the job. So I kind of took both of those thoughts and kind of developed prep medic over the next couple months to one, bring people into emergency medical services and barring that help people help the responders and hospital staff by giving people care until first responders can arrive on scene, which can be, you know, in the United States, I think the average response time is about uh, five minutes. But of course, that can be uh, way longer in rural environments, which, you know, is a lot of the United States. We have a lot of rural environments. You just don't have the pa the population uh, out there. So maybe the calls don't originate quite as much, but it it's definitely there. And like in Iowa, I think we had times where it would take us, you know, 15 to 20 minutes to drive to a town where they really had no medical infrastructure. So really empowering people mm. to do that on their own and to have those supplies and that knowledge base to actually, you know, help those around them because you realize that don't you it's like somebody faints and how little people know how to deal even like they don't know how to check like um like airways and you know they don't know how to deal with like just a simple like um like a scalding and stuff like that you it's it's like when i was saying like oh i'm interviewing this amazing guy does you know he's a medic for the swat teams and he does tactical meds and they were like Oh right, I should really should do my like my St John's ambulance thing, you know, because they were like, it suddenly hits home with people where we always assume, you know, we can win the fight, get the girl, we can, you know, we would be able to deal with a situation. But people go to shit when blood's there, when somebody's defecated themselves because you know they've had a seizure or something like that, and it's like people don't know how to deal with this. But when you when you refer to like tactical medicine, how does that how is that different over like the traditional modalities, you know, like wait for an ambulance, go get seen by a GP, et cetera. How, how does that differ? Tactical medicine? Is that while you're engaging in like, you know, bullets are flying, active uh, shooters and things like that when you're with the police on missions? Yeah. So uh, there's two parts of that, that I kind of want to address. The first part is like people, kind of go into shit and not understanding how to intervene or do anything. We live in a very comfortable society with very built up medical infrastructure. You know, at any time you can call uh, 911 here. I don't know if it's 999 where you're at or, or what it is, but you can call a number and you can get a professional in an ambulance to your door. And we, 
kind of feel like because that's what's been put in place and that's the system that we feel is works, but we probably haven't experienced ourselves. And if we have, it was, you know, a really brief instant and everything was probably okay. We don't think that that can fail. And being on the inside, having experience in police, fire and uh, EMS is that our infrastructure for emergency response is very, very fragile and it can be overwhelmed exceedingly fast. And in a regular day, there are times where it is overwhelmed multiple times a day. And the, the city I'm in is a very affluent city. And there are multiple times a day where there are level zero ambulances. There's nobody that's going to be responding to you. Maybe a fire truck with some emergency medical responders, but that's about it. And really, you know, understanding that and you don't really understand it until you experience it. Like I've had times where we have calls holding and that that gives me anxiety on the ambulance of, you know, nobody's going to this call. There, there's literally nobody going to it. So I think that's a really important thing for people to realize um, within. And this is not, you know, a United States thing. This is not a Colorado thing. This is global in any I don't think there's Definitely. any country that has this figured out to a T. You know, I know Canada's having a lot of issues with it. I know England's having a lot of issues with it. Um, you know, it, it's not just us here. Uh, they're pretty much everywhere. So that's really important. And that's that's something that I think we can definitely dig into. As far as the the tactical portion and what, what that means. Um, so for me, it, it depends where I'm in. When when I was in Iowa, I was a sworn deputy with them, and then then I was a paramedic with the local service, and you know went through uh, their reserve academy, which is like their volunteer academy. They get you certified as a law enforcement officer, and then after doing that and kind of working with them, uh, I ended up getting onto their SWAT team as an entry team member primarily. So I w- had the same responsibilities as anybody else. Uh, on the team, but my subspecialty was as the team medic. And through that, a lot of what we do is proactive. So we are looking at the health of the team first and foremost. So we get, you know, a list of their medical issues, their allergies, their medications. Uh, We get, you know, next of kin emergency contacts, and we put that all on cards. So we have that if one of them goes down, we have all their information right there. We can implement an emergency plan based on them. You know, the next part of that is making sure that they're prepared, making sure that they have, you know, individual first aid kits and all of their vests. They know how to use tourniquets. They know how to pack wounds. They know how to do CPR, you know, take off uh, uh, armor if they need to help expose somebody for me. And then training them to be an extra set of hands if the tactical environment permits it to come down with me and actually render care to their teammates. And then beyond that, we do like risk assessments for, you know, the team commanders. A lot of what we do are warrant based. So they're planned out. We know who's going to be in the house and we actually create a medical plan for them as well. The SWAT medic is for the team initially, but if, you know, something were to happen to somebody in the house, whether that's exposure to tear gas whether that's, you know, having, you know, a fall or being tackled by a SWAT officer, you know, everything from a bone break stub toe up to, you know, unfortunately getting shot if the if the situation required it, then we're mm-hmm. there for them as well. It's not just for the law enforcement agency. We're there for who they're for, you know, we're we're there to protect life in all in all its forms, whether that's, you know, a criminal, a person of interest or uh, a bystander or an officer. So we go into those, it's kind of warrant based, but then also, you know, if the uh, patrol officer pulls somebody over and they pull a gun on them and barricade themselves inside of a home, if somebody takes their, you know, wife or kids hostage, if, you know, there's 
been a shooting and somebody's you know run away we we will respond to that in an emergency uh setting as well not so much active shooters uh active shooters are should be um and i say that because it has not always been the case in recent history it should not be taken care of by a SWAT team. It should be contact teams by patrol officers. A SWAT team is much more of a methodical element than an emergency mm. response element. Um, with the exception of places like, you know, LA, where they're a full-time team uh, in this area, we're, we're not because we just don't have that call volume. Because that's what I love. It's like there's so much in your videos about like, how you deal, like, you know, you'd have teammates like um, checking for potential threats and you know you were show, showcasing the kit that you'd have and how you'd plan it and you know like you go into this amazing amount of detail and it, it's such a high pressure volume you do i mean i come from like the highlands in scotland so you know like we're two hours we were originally from a place called two hours away from the local you know the needs hospital so right. if you you get somebody maybe crash a farm and uh, you know like in a farm accident or they would have like a bleeding leg so you'd have to be airlifted and i found like you would get treated you know you'd understand some basic care but the second it was something more serious people panicked so that's why i'm so i'm always so impressed with people like you who can deal with that situation you know and you're there to make sure that somebody who's being apprehended is actually treated safely securely you know that dealing with any bystanders etc it's phenomenal the work you do i mean you should be so proud of yourself but you have such a range as well i know it's like you know you do paramedics at games you've done paramedics at hiking swap medics you've been in an ambulance you've done i think you were part-time firefighter as well you've got such an idea of like the scope of these services how would you create a more like ebb, ebb and flow, more fluid version, so that because I noticed that you've done training of other people, how would you do it, set it up so that like police have a bit more understanding of what paramedics can do, they have the skills of the standard the firefighters could do a bit more, you know so you didn't have standalone services, it was kind of merged together, is that your kind of overall goal? You know, it's funny because actually kind of the opposite uh, for me. I think there is a base level of knowledge that everybody needs, and mm-hmm. that's that's the high-yield things that they do. So, you know, every I if I had my way, every person, regardless of emergency services, would know uh, basics of bleeding control, which is essentially wound packing with a T-shirt, and CPR and how to recognize a stroke and a heart attack. If you can do all of those things, that is the highest yield training you can have to actually save lives. Like there's a lot of minutia in there. There's a lot of things that, you know, you could optimize, make somebody's day a little bit better, maybe give them a little bit more of a chance. But those things will actually save somebody's life. And it takes less than an hour of training to really get people good at that and to recognize those things and be able to intervene effectively. In the responder situation, what we have is we've got a lot of bleed over. Um, and, you know, we in, in the United States, at least, you know, we have the fire department that kind of pseudo took over parts of EMS. But you have people that are doing ambulance work that want to be firefighters uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, vice versa. And then you have, you know, police officers, which are like some of them are trained as EMTs and you have uh, uh, volunteers, you have professional, you've got ALS, BLS transporting services. And 
if I was to kind of remake things as they are, I would want to allow people to become more subspecialized within their roles. You know, have the the police know that bleeding control, all of that stuff, that first aid, initial care, but ultimately allow for the integration of EMS into uh, police services and allow me, who I've devoted an entire uh, career to emergency medical services, and I know those minutia and I have those protocols and that experience to intervene there and then allow firefighters to do, you know, their special rescue, do firefighting, do the things that, you know, a firefighter is subspecialized and trained to do and kind of avoid the skills dilution between the three, I guess you'd call them branches of emergency services, because there is so much. And like I, you know, I used to be a a part-time firefighter. I was a volunteer firefighter before that. And uh, to be completely honest with you, I was never a good firefighter uh, because mm-hmm. I didn't devote my time and energy to it. I didn't devote uh, a career to really making that a a thing. So I guess what I would say is that there needs to be a base level of knowledge. I need to know a little bit about what the firefighters are doing. I need to know a little bit what law enforcement is doing. But we all have such unique roles and the responsibilities and the demands have only risen over the years. I mean, the the education for every one of those branches has astronomically risen, risen over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. I, you know, 35 years ago, a paramedic was an advanced first aid course in an ambulance in a, in a hearse. Um, so, you know, well, maybe a little bit more than 35 years, but close to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we're doing has expanded uh, substantially. And, you know, similar to I don't think it's fair to have volunteer first responders, you know, having this crazy education they have to do every two years we have to figure out a way to bridge that gap and make sure that everybody has the specialized care they need. So that kind of a convoluted, long-winded answer to your question. I know. I give a lot of them the same versions and questions. So don't worry about that. No, I was, as I was looking through your amazing videos and stuff and that, I was like, he's done a lot. He's done the sort of the, the whole genre, shall we say. And I was really interested in your sort of taking it because you don't often see somebody that's done, you know, paramedics, police, etc. It's usually somebody that's specialized in a particular area. And it kind of just intrigued me, like, what changes you do. And I, I like that idea because I come from an area where it was, you know, you'd have a retained firefighter. You'd have, like, a paramedic who'd done a couple of courses, that, like a part-time, you know, like a medical student. It was it was whoever kind of fitted into these roles. So you'd have the same person doing kind of different things. And it's, I quite like, I really like the idea of like having specialists, you know, you have people that say, Oh, you should be a good all rounder, but not really nowadays in society today, especially if you want to become like vet, like at the top elite level. Now, I assume you go into like a lot of really dangerous situations you know, how are you taught on how would you advise us to approach a situation like a car accident or any kind of particular issue? How do we avoid becoming a bit another casualty? What's a good way of assessing the situation for red flags, etc.? You know, there there's not one good way. I think that the best way to avoid danger to yourself, and and I want to preface everything by saying like, yes, there are like inherently dangerous situations we go into, but we do our best to make them safe, you know, and you can do dangerous things in a safe manner. And I think that's kind of the key, the key here. But one of the big tenets of EMS is scene safety. And, you know, for a long time, that meant that we EMS would not go into a scene if the scene wasn't safe. And that paradigm has been shifting 
since Columbine, essentially, since that uh, mass shooting occurred, because you can't just sit outside. You can't be a passive bystander. You have to be mm -hmm. able to enter these dangerous situations and render care. It's, it's literally your job uh, as a first responder. So that being said, we're not entering in needlessly. What I have found the, the best way to kind of mitigate risks is to stop, take a breath and look around is when you have that car accident on the highway and you look across that highway and you see that car is mangled and you see somebody's femur bone sticking out of the front seat and you see blood everywhere and you know something you know maybe there's a car seat in the back seat and all you think you you zero into that and you're thinking I need to get over mm -hmm. there I need to do something and this still happens to me this happens to first responders all over the place you get so zoned in and if I was to just zombie walk over to that car and start treatment, which is uh, uh, what needs to happen eventually, I'm going to get hit by the car passing that didn't see this happen. That's that's still driving on this highway. So being able to take a second to yourself and recognize the physiologic response to stress and to this emergent situation and walk with a purpose over to that scene, being cognizant of your surroundings, I think that will do the most for people that doesn't that doesn't mean that you're going to find every threat that doesn't mean you're not you know you didn't miss that power line over that car that's going to electrocute you there's still risk but at least you're going into it eyes wide open and you have an idea of what you're walking into so just taking a breath slowing yourself down um not panicking and even if you feel panicked on the inside presenting yourself as calm, cool, and collected, because that's kind of a reverse feedback loop is if you present yourself that way, it's going to, you're going to start feeling that way, or at least a little bit more. And that's huge. You know, it only takes one person on scene panicking to derail everybody, mm -hmm. uh, and, and to start that cycle of panic. And, um, it's, it's a bad cycle to get in because it's not going to get you where you need to be on that scene. That's a great answer because, you know, I'm sure we've all been in situations where somebody's fallen on a swing set and they've knocked themselves unconscious and all the friends are crying and screaming and suddenly the mom runs out and doesn't notice and trips over something, you know, and it's like, it, it's one of those kind of situations It's like, we a lot of people just immediately see the thing and like you're saying, the zombie straight into it and they don't immediately stop and go, is there like a chance of an electrocute? Is there this? Is there that? And yeah, it's great to have the training, but for most people, they don't know. And it's the emotions, the adrenaline. It's the so I love systems. I love having a way to kind of making not a to do list, but actually uh, like an acronym or a, a way to look at things. I think you use is it the March system? M A R C H E. Is yeah, that so that's just one one mode of assessment, uh, the March algorithm, they call it, uh, which is kind of going through an assessment pathway to address life threats in the order they matter most. Uh, so there's a lot of different um, uh, algorithms that you can go through. You know, I was taught uh, ABCDE uh, was the initial one in EMS. Now, a lot of people are, are taking on March, which uh, originated in the military and in conflict zones. Um, there, there's all sorts, there's CAB, which was taught, um, as, uh, CPR, uh, or in CPR for HA for a long time. And essentially what, what these are is these look at your hard stop life threats. These are your next, what's going to kill your patient in the next three to five minutes. Okay. And it's the order that makes the most sense to intervene. So in March, when we start with M, that stands for massive hemorrhage. Well, unless you're insanely prepared and you have some, you know, blood products in your back pocket, which you don't, 
you need to address that bleeding because we can't put blood back in the body. So it doesn't matter if they're ble- if they're breathing, if they have nothing to circulate that oxygen around their body. So we look at March and we say, hey, M, that's my most important intervention. I need to stop any external bleeding that I can because that's going to kill this patient and I can't make up time. If they're without a pulse for just a little bit longer, it's probably not going to be as detrimental if they le- lose another liter of blood um, out of that, that leg gash or something like that. So we look at, at March 1st. Now in a tactical environment, uh, massive hemorrhage is really one of the only things you're addressing. If you're in like an active threat area, uh, you're not like kneeling down in the middle of a battlefield doing it, but if you have a second getting a tourniquet on somebody packing a wound, like that can be done in the M portion of it. Now we move on to a, which is going to be your airway. And that's just ensuring, so MA, that's ensuring that you have a good communication of air from the mouth or nose to the lungs. And this could be as simple as uh, turning somebody on their side, you know, if they're unresponsive, putting them in a recovery position so vomit drains out of their mouth and Mm. they don't gurgle on that and die in the meantime. That could be uh, positioning somebody's jaw, doing a head tilt chin lift, which is literally just taking their chin and picking their head up. And that just lifts the tongue off the back of the throat. Uh, for them, or it could be, you know, inserting an NPA or even doing a cricothyrotomy if you want to go that far. And after that, we're looking at respirations. Great. We have a line of communication of air. Now the next step is, is are they making use of that? Are they actually breathing through that? Are they able to, to take a breath in and start exchanging those gases? And in this one becomes a little bit harder because, you know, you, you tell people, you know, as a professional responder, I take out a bag valve mask or an advanced airway and I breathe for them in a civilian world. That's going to look like either, you know, mouth to mouth that, which I don't usually recommend because there's a lot of nastiness that comes along with that. But, you know, if it's somebody, you know, and love and trust, um, you can do that. Uh, it can be getting a barrier device and breathing for them, kind of the classic, you know, CPR breathe for them once every six seconds or so, uh, and, and just ensuring that, or it might be stimulating them so they breathe. So we do like a painful stimuli, a trap print pinch or something. This can be utilized in like an overdose. A lot of times you can stimulate some drive to breathe and, and have their body take over that function again. Um, so after your respiration, we're going to look at circulation. So in this, this would be the point where, you know, we could look at CPR for the patient. We're going to do some other things. We might start an IV, give blood products, do a pelvic binder to stop some of that bleeding. I find that C is a lot of times more of the professional realm where we have the tools to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, in the civilian world, this would be, you know, doing CPR essentially. Uh, for these patients. And there are some other skills you can learn, but it's a little bit above the purview of uh, a podcast. And then, you know, last uh, but not least, when we have like an H, that would be hypothermia. So we underestimate, you know, you have somebody hit by a car on a 92 degree day, a 92 degree Fahrenheit day. I'm not sure what that would translate to in uh, uh, Celsius, but really hot out. It's a hot summer day and they've bled a lot and you've done all of these treatments. We don't think about hypothermia being a thing. But Mm -hmm. when you have an insult to the body and you're going into a profound shock state, your body actually becomes what's called uh, poikilothermic. I hate saying that on camera because I always get it wrong. But that's your body starts taking on the ambient temperature. And in the clotting cascade, what our body is trying to do, it starts to break down at about 95 degrees. So 
with that, your, your temperature is going to start dropping and they can actually become hypothermic at, on a very hot summer day. So preserving that body heat because they don't have the ability to preserve it themselves, that's actually going to do a ton for them in terms of bleeding control and uh, helping mitigate some of that internal damage that's sure to have uh, gone on. And then a lot of these, uh, a, a lot of these uh, algorithms we add on an E, which would be like, uh, extrication, getting somebody, you know, out of that situation would, would be the next step there. And that's just one example of, um, a algorithm to kind of assess your patients. You know, if you want to go really simple CAB, uh, circulation, airway, breathing, you know, stop major bleeding, start CPR, make sure they have a patent airway and breathe for them if they need that to happen. That's a really simplified version of that. Love it because that's what we had. It was um, over here. It was ABC, and then it was um, you would give what was it? Was it staying alive by the Bee Gees? It was like you were to give the um, the compressions to like staying alive. You would do like having the song to yourself, you know. And I love that because everybody remembers it. You know, and I, I love that kind of tool of it's like instead of going, oh my god, uh, there's bleeding, there's a uh, you immediately go, okay, and you can go through that breakdown. And that's what I always say to people is, what's a system you use? What's a hack you use to to remember when you're high-pressure situation, shit's flying, and, you know, and um, because everybody thinks they can do it, but a second things go wrong, and, you know, blood's flowing, and the patient's quiet. Like, I know everybody's in a car accident when somebody gets whiplash or something's quiet because the belt was tight across their chest or... um especially if it's a loved one. You mentioned earlier about how you like have to remain calm in a situation and pr- give that personification of calmness, even if you're panicking. So when mm-hmm. you're super stressed and the adrenaline's spiraling and you're in a high-pressure situation, how should we deal with patients? You know, Because like, I think you've mentioned about how you know, when you're putting a tourniquet on, for example, you'll say, Okay, this will hurt. It's meant to hurt because it's stopping the blood, but it's saving you. You know, you, how you talk to your patient. How do you control yourself in that high-stress situation, but also deal with the patient, keep them calm, keep them safe, make sure they're not about to walk and run into traffic? How, how could a civilian do this, even though their heart's beating at their chest? Is it just, like, take a breath, sit with them, explain what you're doing, and you've that would help or is there a better way for a civilian to encounter it yeah you know i mean taking the breath is a huge a huge part of that and the reality is that's not always going to help you you know sometimes you're beyond that point uh but like you said systems are great you know having something to fall back on and you know i'm to a point in my career where i can kind of go through an assessment how it needs to be done and not like think okay m massive hemorrhage a airway and go, I don't really need to do that in my head most of the time. Most of the time I can go up to a patient, I know it's important, and I, I kind of go on autopilot with it. That being said, when things start going really sideways or I'm flustered, somebody's on scene is screaming, like you're trying to control things. Maybe you're just tired or you're just angry because the flight over to that scene just wasn't great. Um, what happens to us a lot, we might be like really, really motion sick or something. And what I find is great in those situations is to fall back on that system. So I will then consciously like I'll find myself doing like five things, but not really completing anything and kind of just telling people to do random stuff. I'll take a breath and I'll say like, okay, M, 
massive hemorrhage. And even though I know that this is not, uh, this is a stroke, this isn't, this isn't a traumatic situation. I'm going to look at them and be like, all right, no massive hemorrhage. All right, airway. Do we have an airway? Okay, great. We got that. And just really methodically, like in my head, say that out, sometimes even say it out loud, because that's a great feedback to yourself. If you say something out loud, sometimes it makes your body believe it. Um, it's kind of back to that reverse feedback is if you're presenting something, it can kind of come back into you and kind of help uh, make things better uh, in that situation. So I think that's a big part of it. As far as like patient communication, there are entire uh, doctorate courses on, you know, the best way to communicate with patients. And mm -hmm. in an emergency setting, I think the key is, is to be direct and firm and confident. If you're projecting confidence and you, you are being direct and, and you're saying things, you, you say what you mean and you mean what you say, you're not sugarcoating things, but you're also not being overly dramatic. That goes a long ways in building trust with your patients. They don't want somebody that's there nervous over them, even though you're, you're hella nervous. They don't want somebody that's scared, even though you might be scared. So if you can project that, that goes a long way for them trusting you. And I've found that they will allow you to perform procedures that are uh, very painful and very scary to them. But if you're like, hey, we have to do this, like, like you said, this tourniquet is going to hurt. Like this is going to cause you a lot of pain. And it is not a fun experience and it might be there for a long time, but we have to do this and you're going to get through it. Just saying that is going to, to be great for your patients. And then, you know, on the flip side is just being honest. Like if, you know, I, I hear these stories that medics are like, I told them they probably wouldn't live. And I, I don't think that's really like truth. A lot of times, you know, oftentimes if somebody's going to die, uh, it, it's not something where they're talking to you and then they die, or at least I don't know that in the field, but regardless with that is just being honest, like, yeah, you know, your leg looks, looks pretty mangled right now. You know, we're going to see what we can do. You know, if you have an amputation, like, no, your, your leg's not attached to your body. Like we're going to get you uh, the help you need. It's going to be okay. So just being kind of rambling at this point, but just being really direct with them and not trying to sugarcoat things while also just not playing it up. Like, oh man, that wreck was crazy. Like you're, I can't believe you're alive. Holy crap. Like, did you see the people yeah. in the other car? They're all dead. Uh, like that's also not helpful. So, you know, finding that balance and just being really even keel with them is huge to developing that trust. That's great, Andrew, because it's like you see so many people, it's like, I, I, yeah, I'd be able to control and explain to somebody how to do something. But like, if it's your daughter, suddenly, you know, it's like I, I watched somebody's video about teaching his daughter how to put a tourniquet on her leg and she was struggling because she couldn't work out the left to right because it was us. He, he threw it to her and said, put it on quickly. And then she was like, okay, got it on. She started putting it on and he went, oh, that's a bit tight. And she started taking it off and he was like, but that would actually be worse to take it off because I, you know, it was helping something the bleeding, but it was just, you know, but she was trying to not hurt her daddy in her view but in his world he was like but that's what i needed you to do so he said that's why we train because we keep doing this over and i love that approach because you kind of do need to do the best for the patient not emotionally care for them if you know what i mean it's and I, i've really impressed them like i noticed um like in certain countries an ambulance is coming through a lot of people panic because they hear the sirens and they don't know what to do so if they're like a bystander as a paramedic, what do you want somebody to do? You know, like, even if it's just something or be aware of in an emergency situation, is it pull off to the side, leave a space for you to come through? Is it kind of 
don't come and gawk and think, you know, what would you want people like as, as a bystanders to do that makes your job easier for you? It's very situation dependent as far as like driving to them uh, here in the United States, pull to the right and stop your car. Uh, if you're on a highway, pull to the farthest right lane and continue driving. Don't just stop in the middle of things, but pull to the right, get out of the way of the ambulance and just, just let it pass. Don't pull to the left. Don't make a split lanes. That's different country to country. So I don't know, uh, how it is everywhere. Now, as far as like bystanders on scene, uh, most of the time, a calm bystander that's keeping their distance, but is still available to be called upon if we need something is important. And then also a bystander that recognizes, when they don't need to be there anymore and leaving. Uh, you know, the, the time where a bystander can intervene and make a huge difference is usually before EMS arrival. Now, that's not to say they're not useful in certain situations and that we won't utilize them when we're resource limited, but most of the time it's, I don't need you hovering over this patient. I don't need you giving me your advice. I don't care that you're a podiatrist and that you think he's got an ingrown toenail. And, and you laugh, but it, it's true. And that has, that, that has happened to us on scene. So, you know, everybody, no you know, way. oh man, my, my wife's a paramedic. So I think I can help you in this situation. Or, you oh. know, I saw a podcast that said I should do this. So like <laughs> just being able to kind of back up, um, and, and not make things worse, you know, patients, you know, sometimes there's a really calming presence, you know, especially with, you know, an autistic, uh, uh, individual that might be a patient or somebody that's, you know, emotionally vulnerable in some way. Sometimes you can have somebody that's really a calming presence for them. I'll give them, I'll give you a hint though. It's never the person that's crowding over their head crying. That's never helping the situation. So just remaining calm, backing up and then helping where they are directed to do so. And just kind of not doing anything else in that situation. Like I said, the time for them to help is before we get there. Yeah, because it's it's always that thing of like, no, no, no. He looks like I, I've I've seen this. I could do that, and it's like you're just making it worse. But the meanwhile, but I think that's the thing is we all want to help. But like you were saying earlier about it's the specialist skills. It's you want to get that person in. You want to stay out of the way. Help if they ask for it, but you know, stay back and then leave as directed. Nowadays, you see people taking their phones out. They want to. Oh, I need to, I'm going to put this on Instagram, and it's. It's almost like we've forgotten how to be a community sometimes, you know, and helping each other and stuff. But so That's when phone phones are awful um, for for us, and like number one, it completely derails my my psyche. Like I, you know, I'm used to it at this point. You know, we can work through it. It's not like it's going to just wreck everything. But you know. I get pretty upset with that where you have somebody that's having the worst day of their life. And it might be like a really crazy situation. It might be something that you think you can get some views on, on TikTok or on, on Instagram, but having a bunch of phones in your face, when you're trying to perform as a professional, when somebody's having a human being, a member of your community is having a horrible day is probably hmm. if if they're okay enough where they're conscious, it's probably embarrassing. If they're unconscious, like can you imagine if their their daughter or their wife sees that pop up on social media when their you know dad is now or or relative is now a quadriplegic from this accident? Can you imagine how triggering that would be for them if they see this pop up on a social hmm. media site or you know on you know World Star Hip Hop or something like you know one of these horrible sites? Um, so I. I guess I would just encourage people to be respectful. Uh, you know, 
a phone is not helping anybody. It, it is really not helping anybody when it comes to emergency medical care um, and, and people getting what they need uh, to have done. Because it scares me that like, that's a lot of people's reactions is, I'm going to take a photo of this, I'm going to record this, rather than, a, okay, how can I help? You know, that somebody's hurting there. You know, like you would want somebody to help you if it was your family. Like, but why... It's probably a whole podcast as one of why people have gotten to that point. You know, probably it'll probably drive us crazy just talking about it. But you know, it's like so. Once you've gone to a scene and you've dealt with this, I was always keen on like debriefing to get better. You know, what I mean, have you got sort of principles that you look at a situation to become a better paramedic and a better man and a better way of doing it? You know, what feedback do you look for? So you know that the next time you go, because I'm assuming like when you're doing the tactical stuff, you know, you're seeing stuff and it's, did you apprehend the subject? Were they controlled? Okay. Did you need to give any, you know, we got them there without this. And then we had to give medication. And I, you know, my modification on my battle armor, I needed this easier, but it was down by my leg and, you know, that sort of thing. How, how do you deal with that for feedback, but also, when you get a call and it's a car smash and there's three families involved, you know, wh- what are you doing? Do you have a, a similar approach for both styles of medicine? Yeah. So I, we have a personal one. I, I have my personal system and then we have uh, systems in place as an organization to kind of help us do just that. Uh, for me, it's, I look at any time I feel uncomfortable. Uh, so that goes as far as just checking the helicopter in the morning. When I'm going through the equipment, making sure we have everything, if I lay my hand on something and I don't instantly know what its indications, contraindications, functionality is, when I'd use it, how I'd use it, that's a sign to me to go look it up um, or to ask my partner to, to take a quick in-service or go on YouTube and watch a video talking about it. There's so much information. So for me... Uh, discomfort is a sign that there's something you can't do or don't know that you should be able to. If you feel uncomfortable, that's a sign that there's something you could probably do to make yourself feel less uncomfortable in that situation. So that's what I do preemptively is I kind of look things up and make sure that I'm familiar with what we're dealing with. As far as like looking at a call and kind of debriefing that on how to get that better, at least on a, a technical side from a provider level, you know, kind of the same thing is what went right, you know, on a SWAT call, that's looking at, you know, what I have on me and somebody comes up to me and asks me for X, Y, Z, and I didn't have it. So next time I'm going to make sure that that thing is accessible or that I have that, or I'll look at the last year and be like, I've never used this tool in this pack. I think maybe it's time to, to take it out of, out of there. So from a technical standpoint, that's what I do. As far as an emotional standpoint and kind of looking at like, how do you move on? Um, how do you kind of leave work at work? Uh, make sure that you're taking care of yourself uh, from a mental health standpoint. I've been lucky enough where I, I haven't had any mental health struggles from this career. Uh, and I understand that that is not, you know, uh, a universal experience. And I'm sure, you know, now that I, I am a father, um, I haven't gone on any horrific pediatric calls since then, but I'm kind of holding my breath to see how that will feel, uh, when that time does, does come and it, it will come eventually. Uh, but for other people, and, and I've been involved with a lot of these processes is just talking about it on a peer to peer level. You know, there's, 
a, a lot of data out there to suggest that going to have nachos with your coworker and discussing things in a constructive manner and not a, a critical manner is almost just as effective as having a formal critical incident, incident stress debriefing. Just having those support systems, people that understand you, like does it might not be your spouse. You know, your your spouse might not truly understand what you're doing, what you're going through. So finding somebody that does understand and talking through that, I think, is huge. Um, but like I said, it, a constructive method of doing that is big, is, you know, not being like, oh, man, my God, you should have really put that tourniquet on in a different place or, wow, you were losing your mind. What's wrong with you? Like, that's not going to help anybody. But being able mm -hmm. to talk through uh, uh, what happened and what you could do next time is big. Now, on a professional standpoint, we do uh, our medical director because we're on one of the helicopter units in Northern Colorado. We're a very small group of people uh, and we have phys uh, direct physician oversight. So our medical director will come to every meeting and pretty much any bad flight we have, uh, bad as in the patient was really sick, no matter how good we did, they'll go through it piece by piece. They'll pull all report. We'll do a presentation in front of all our peers and basically say like, this is what we saw. This is what we did. And then we get feedback from them. So one, it helps them kind of look at it and say, okay, like if I was in that situation, here's how I would be thinking about it. And then it helps me look at it from kind of a, a different perspective. And now the next time I see it, I'll take those suggestions into account. So, so that's kind of how we deal with it on a professional level. I like it because I'm a big fan of what gets measured, gets managed. You know, it's like you see people saying like, I want to do this. And you go, well, what's your goal? Don't know. And you say, well, how did you get on last time? Nah, it was all right. And you're like, well, if you don't know how, if you're getting better or what could be, but you know, and it's, and that's how I'm, I'm always keen to speak to like experts like yourself who kind of go, what do I need to know better? Have I not used that? Do you find like you're actually doing that with your videos now that you're maybe seeing something that you don't know and you're making a video on it to learn and that helps you become a better paramedic because you have to go and get the knowledge. You have to get the skills to make the video on it. Yeah, absolutely. So I teach uh, uh, pediatric advanced life support. I see, teach uh, advanced cardiac life support, advanced medical life support, pre-hospital trauma life support, TCCC. Uh, I do a lot of teaching disciplines within this role, and that was purely out of a selfish desire to put myself in an uncomfortable situation to be better at it. Um, I am not comfortable with kids uh, because dosages are different. Treatments are different. How we go about it is different. And getting my PALS instructor certification forced me to go sit down and study it. So I know it to a point where I can teach it to somebody else. And like mm -hmm. you said, with videos, a lot of it is the same way is that I'll, I'll get a device or I'll be talking about like something like abdominal trauma. And that will be, I'll, I'll open my paramedic textbook and I'll read that chapter and I'll look at, you know, up-to-date stuff to make sure that I'm saying the best information. And that helps me in my professional practice. So what I do know about how I learn and about how I progress in my career is that the just pure self-motivation of like, I have no reason to do this, but I'm just going to go read my, my textbook. I don't do that. I, I have never done that. I probably never will do that. But if I give myself a deadline of, you know, I need to do this video in this amount of time, I'm going to go do it because that's my own motivation. So you know, I don't know if that's necessarily the healthiest way to do it. I, you know, I wish I had, you know, the, the, uh, ability to just sit down and do it, but that's not how I work. So being able to instruct and teach other people 
is a great way to learn it on your own. And unfortunately, that comes with embarrassment along the ways, and that comes with not knowing something periodically, but uh, it's well worth it. It's, I think that's the best thing is to be a beginner, you know, to, to learn by doing it. Because they always say in jiu-jitsu, like, I mean, I, I do a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, is if you can't teach it to somebody, like they're like a five-year-old, you don't know it. So the, the best way to learn it is by teaching it. And I found that, like what a difference that makes. It's And you almost, I think it's like, especially a lot of content creation, it's like scratching your own itch, you know, it's whatever you're into. And there's always like, I remember my mom used to say, if, if you've got a question, Google it, because 20,000 other people have it. And so if you can show it to somebody, you learn it by getting to that level. That Like, you know, you're an expert when you know something more than the next person or the, the vast majority of people. Now, do you think there's like certain skills that we should all be learning? You know, should we be going out and doing a first aid kit? Should we have sort of an understanding of immersion situations? You know, is it basic bleeding? Is it how to use a first aid kit? How to pack a, a wound and not stick a tampon in it? Like some of these stupid I myths. I like, I love your video on that. You know, like what would you want us to do skill wise? to be a better understanding of this? Like, is, is there courses we should go on? Obviously, apart from your own, like, you know, what would you right. want us to be qualified in a way? Or is it just to understand medicine or how to deal or help till you get there? Yeah, so I look at this as kind of a, a tiered approach. And what's really cool is almost all of this can be taught at least to a, a certain degree through social media, through YouTube, through a podcast. It's a little bit hard with audio only, but mm -hmm. even the concepts are pretty easily applied to uh, everyday life around you. And I kind of look at being prepared for these uh, potential life-threatening situations in a tiered approach. You know, I, I go overboard because that's, I, it fits my lifestyle. I can do it. You know, I wear an ankle trauma kit. I carry a firearm where I go. Um, and you know, I usually, you know, and, and I have the, the skills and the knowledge to back those up. That's not feasible or beneficial to a lot of people. And that's totally okay. If you don't want to go that far and a huge mistake we make is telling everybody that that's what they need, because then it's either all or nothing. They're either going to carry all that stuff and, and be an asset, or they're not going to carry it and they're just useless. And that's not the case at all. So for somebody walking down the street that doesn't want to carry anything in addition to their keys and, and their phone and their wallet, uh, you can intervene in almost any situation. So, you know, first and foremost, I would say no CPR. That, that's such an easy thing. And you don't have to know breathing for them. You don't have to know mouth to mouth. All you have to do is be able to identify where to place your hands on their chest and know the rate of rate and depth of compressions. And like you said, it's either uh, staying alive if you're a optimist or it's uh, another one bites the dust if you're a pessimist. So mm. either one works. They'll give you the same uh, rate. It just kind of depends how you're feeling that day uh, for the patient, but maybe not singing another one bites the dust out loud. That probably doesn't fill people <laughs> around you with uh, confidence, I would say. But with that, knowing CPR is huge. And what we know is that compression only CPR and cardiac arrest is just as effective as doing 30 compressions in two breaths, uh, with some exceptions if it's a respiratory issue to begin with. But generally speaking, you're going to get very good results from those compressions. 
being able to apply an AED is another one and understanding where they might be located. Now, that doesn't take a genius. It tells you exactly how to apply these pads to a patient, and then you just follow the instructions. So I think that's like your your base level knowledge set. If you know that, you can intervene in a lot of situations uh, and make a huge difference for people. The next step on top of that is I would say no basic bleeding control. So, you know, people think, you know, I teach Stop the Bleed, and everybody thinks that it is a tactical skill, that this is done in mass shootings and mass shootings alone. But the reality mm-hmm. is, is 12 years being in EMS, uh, I have done bleeding control on people that have been in construction accidents that have put their hands through plate glass windows that were in motorcycle wrecks, all of these really mundane things that are in everyday society, regardless if, you know, you're in the U S and there are firearms or if you're, you know, in London and you know, there, there aren't, these skills are still applicable to you. So with that bleeding control can be accomplished with just the t-shirt that you're wearing. Um, or any kind of tight knit fabric. And that can be done on any part of the body. So uh, not every any part of the body, it can be done in parts of the body where that bleeding is controllable in the pre hospital environment. Uh, So it's preventable causes of death is the name of the game. So for this, um, if you have a wound that is spurting that is pooling blood under the patient, uh, that is soaking through multiple layers of clothing and continuing to get bigger. There's a lot of different ways to identify life-threatening bleeding. But if you see that and you think it's life-threatening, take your t-shirt and start shoving it in the wound where you believe the bleeding is coming from. And this is good to use on junctional sites. So uh, the base of the neck, uh, there the uh, armpit and the groin, and then on any extremity, uh, on any arm. We don't teach wound packing into like the cranial vault. So if they've got some brain showing, probably don't stick gauze in there. Uh, I hope that's common sense. We don't teach that into the chest cavity because you're just going to be compressing lungs, heart tissue, and you're not going to be getting to the source of bleeding. We don't do that in the abdomen uh, either. But besides those spots, because ultimately there's nothing you're going to do for it in, in that environment, you can pack any other wound. So just being able to pack a wound and deal with life-threatening hemorrhage is another huge thing that you can do. And like I said, you don't need anything to do it. Then the next step would be getting into more of like carrying specialized tools. So I carry a tourniquet on me because that's a lot easier for me to apply to somebody's extremity if they're bleeding really bad and it's faster to apply, but it's now it's a piece of equipment I have to buy. I have to be confident in uh, and be able to use. Um, And then you can like take that one step further. You can look at like a pocket mask or something to breathe for somebody. You can look at uh, naloxone if you're worried about overdoses. But I think that takes it to almost a, a larger knowledge base that you need a little bit more training to actually perform properly. And if they know those two skills, you're dealing with a lot of life threats. Um, I would say some other things to look at that we talked about are recognizing a stroke. So being able to do a basic stroke assessment on somebody and, you know, you can do the Cincinnati stroke scale, you can do the BFAST stroke scale, it doesn't matter. The big things you're looking for are do they, if, if they smile at you, you have them raise both sides of their mouth. If you have one side that is drooping, uh, unilateral, uh, one side, that's a sign of a stroke. Cool. We can basically say, we're going to treat this like a stroke until we, we can determine otherwise. If you have them take their arms out in front of them, close their eyes and count to 10, are they able to raise both hands? Does one arm fall? 
um, and then we can have them uh, speak. So assuming they haven't had a bunch of beers at the local bar, uh, have them speak. Are they slurring their words? Are the wrong words coming out? Um, are just sounds coming out? Uh, you know, are they just really confused? Those are all things that we can say, Hey, this, this could be a stroke. We're going to treat it like a stroke, get them to the hospital. So being able to recognize that as one being able to recognize heart attack. Now I don't want people to confuse it. The media gets really, they say like, Oh, somebody had a heart attack on the field. And usually what they mean by that is cardiac arrest that they're talking about their heart stopped. And a heart attack is actually a blockage of the coronary arteries in the heart which can cause the heart to stop, but that is not always the cause of a cardiac arrest. So in a heart attack, this is uh, chest pain. This is pain radiating to the jaw uh, down, usually the left arm, but it could be, you know, to the back or even to the right arm. Um, and it's usually pain that doesn't change on position or uh, necessarily movement. It might get worse on exertion, but it's not going to change whether I'm sitting up or laying down. Now that we have those things, that those are the big life threats that that a bystander can in, intervene with. And to be clear, with a stroke or a heart attack, this is activating emergency services right away. This is not putting them in your car necessarily and driving because one, you don't know what the hospital's capability is you're going to. You might get in the car, drive them to the local ER only to find out that they're not uh, capable of intervening on a stroke or they're not capable of doing uh, uh PCI for the heart. Um, so calling emergency services and being able to get them to the appropriate facility in a short amount of time is huge. I love that. I mean, that alone should probably save a lot of lives, you know, like how to use your T-shirt, how to, because it's like the things, you know, you see if somebody gets hit by a car, by a quill on a bike and they're bleeding from the leg or somebody puts their hand through glass by accident, you know, and it's like, how to, uh, like your videos are fantastic. And that's what I, I love promoting your channel because, to a lot of people to say, oh, but I haven't got money to go on these courses. And you're like, well, there's a lot of free, amazing YouTube videos about how to do it. And I love your style. Like you've got such a fantastic voice and mannerism and like detailed videos. And it's like, why not to do this and how that's going to hurt and why that works and how to forms of this and that happens. And it's, there's so many amazing things. And I was like, his channel's filled with life-saving stuff. Never mind all the additional like badass stuff he does as well, but you do have a uh like when you're looking at your everyday carry, you know, you have this like ankle kit, you have like gauzes and all this kind of stuff you carry and you know, you do a lot of great product reviews. But when you're doing like your tactical stuff, you know, you've got the body armor on, the the armor plates, you're carrying your weapons, you're you're carrying like your fifty different kits, your like controls injections for people who are maybe like, you know, on drugs and stuff like that. How do you build your own personal combat chassis? I think I got that from Nick the Machine about, you know, how do you build yourself up to go hiking and, you know, support these people, deal with people at like basketball games or deal with like situations where you're going over rough terrain and stuff? You know, like how would, how should we be fit for life in a way? Is it like hiking, walking, running, cycling? What would you want us to do? You know, it, it really depends on what you're doing. And, and I'm not perfect on this. Like I've got some body fat that I probably do not need. And there is definitely room to grow in, in my own fitness in that case. But, you know, if you're going to be doing any of these things, 
everything is made easier the fitter you are uh, in any of these emergency situations. So number one, you know, doing an amount of cardio, uh, something that gives you good cardiovascular health, because number one, that's going to help keep your heart rate a little bit lower on some of these scenes. A lower heart rate makes us think better. Um, I don't know the science behind that. I don't know what it is, but if your heart rate is raised up, you're in this perpetual state of stress, uh, it's only going to be made worse by these situations. So having that cardiovascular health uh, is huge in EMS and in, in my realm. As far as like keeping fit and keeping prepared to do these jobs, I have found a lot of utility in um, really uh, focused fitness within, within this realm. I was using a guy, he runs, uh, Benton Lewis, I believe is his name. And he runs the tactical human. And he basically is a, a EMS oriented personal trainer that does things online that makes, that makes, uh, plans for EMS providers, for military members, police. And a lot of those workouts are really real world things like go for a hike, go hike up the mountain. If you're on a search and rescue team, and you're expected to carry a litter or heavy things, like why aren't you just go do that activity and do it a couple more times and you're going to be more prepared to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I find like my personal training, like right now I'm, I'm prepping for a marathon and that helps, but like not allowing it to be only cardio being, you know, a strong individual is important. We had one uh, incident I can think of right when I started flights and we ended up landing on top of a, a local rock. It's called gray rock and search and rescue is going to be probably about four hours to get up to us. And we had a patient with a broken leg, uh, at the top, the way the pilot landed, he couldn't take off, uh, the collective. He had to keep the rotors spinning so he couldn't get out and help us, uh, off the helicopter. And it was me and a, my very skinny, uh, ultra marathon running partner uh, with me. And we had to carry a 180 pound guy up probably 200 yards up kind of a rocky embankment on our stretcher in quite a lot of pain to the helicopter. And that for me, it, it, we got him there. We used some bystanders eventually when they showed up, but, um, that was a big eye opener of the amount of strength that you do need and not just, you know, a deadlift strength. It's, it's rotational strength. It's the ability to grip things and, you know, leg strength, of course, it all kind of comes together. And then factor in cardio on top of that being at 11,000 feet trying to do all of this. So uh, all of this is a roundabout way of saying is look at what activities you're doing or might have to do and train accordingly. But I don't think, you know, I think a bodybuilder is disadvantaged in this career. I think an ultra marathon runner is disadvantaged in this career. I think having a little bit more of a, a holistic, all encompassing approach to fitness is where you're going to find the most success uh, as a EMS provider or doing any kind of special rescue. Because I'm a big fan of like um, irregular carries, you know, like uh, when I came from a place where we were feeding sheep and stuff, so you had like a hay, a hay bale on your shoulder and you're walking over to like muddy ground and stuff. And then I came down here and I was like, people would say, oh, you're really strong. And I was like, I, I don't think I am. But a lot of people don't come off the couch. Whereas we were used to like, you know carrying 25 kilogram bags of feed in each hand over a distance people go well that's a farmer walk and you're like like that was just life you know and it's you realize the difference it's like until you're doing it regularly like suddenly you you're blowing out your ass as you're trying to go up a hill and so you know and i think that's the thing is you do these uh, such a range of different things it's like people need to be doing far more 
variety in their fitness. Um, it's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. What I was really interested was like, you know, you you know, you're jumping out on a helicopter to come to somebody, going up a, a flight, a tough terrain, or you're going into a dangerous situation. So your adrenaline's flowing in that. You said like we need to be fast, but, but be methodical. How are you taught to control that emotion and still utilize that? Is there a way like that we can kind of control ourselves? I know it kind of links back to the previous question, like one of the previous questions, but how, like, because I remember I was just thinking just now about one of your helicopter videos and I thought, imagine jumping off that just now, seeing somebody down there, you know their thing, and you have to abseil down. And how, how do you control that? Do you do box breathing? Do you, are you just zoning on the patient and doing your, like, okay, I got here, 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 here's the danger points? What other techniques do you use? You know, I, I would imagine some listeners won't like this answer, but I think the biggest thing that has helped me is repetition. Um, I remember early on, I, I got my start in ski patrol. Uh, very early on in my career, uh, we had a, a kid, probably seven or eight years old, bomb a double black diamond and go right into a uh, box filled with pipes and wiring for all the snowmaking equipment and he messed himself up and I was I don't remember it I was yelling into the radio I was freaked out um because this was like my first super serious patient I was on my own on the ski hill it was a cold day uh trying to get a helicopter in the air and you know I did that multiple times I had scenes where I am not proud of because I was panicking because I was you know in in my own head, I was not thinking straight and I was succumbing to that stress we're kind of talking about mitigating. And it was only after hundreds, thousands of patient contacts and being in these stressful situations over and over and over again that I have been able to kind of refine how I respond to it. Mm -hmm. And through that, I don't know beyond just taking a breath and trying to really just stay, like it, it sounds so like, it's horrible to say it because it, it it's not going to work every time, but just being outwardly calm and, and taking those really deep breaths. I don't do box breathing. I don't have a very set strategy on how I'm dealing with it. For me, the biggest teacher has just been repetition and going back to those calls. I, I had some mentors call me out early on about what I should be doing and about how I acted. And that has helped me a lot being able to take that feedback and just really consciously controlling it. And now, um, like we still get amped up. We still, you know, get that adrenaline rush, but it is a job. Um, you know, and I've done it enough times where it, it's not quite, 
it looks really intense, but it's not. This is, you know, people think a helicopter is a big deal. I get in that all the time and it's just not a big deal to me anymore. Mm. Um, same with a lot of these emergency scenes. So it's not a super helpful piece of advice for your listeners um, to say repetition because the reality of these situations are is that if you you aren't doing this as a career and you just want to be a more prepared individual and have this knowledge base, you're not going to see it every day. You're not going to see it every week, every month, every year. So you're not going to get that repetition and you might find yourself in these stressful situations and come away from it and beat yourself up and say, oh man, I, I was a tool back there. I was yelling, I was panicked. And I think the best thing I could say is just be kind to yourself. And if you're trying to help and you have some knowledge and you're trying to implement that, even if maybe it wasn't perfect, maybe you did something a little wrong. Uh, be proud that you helped and try to improve the next time in the next couple years you see that. Try to take those lessons to heart and uh, just really focus on uh, taking a breath, taking a pause. We call it a tactical pause and just freezing for a second. You've got a lot of stuff to do, but organize it in your head and move on from there. So it's a great answer because I'm, I'm a big component of, you know, you'll fall back to the level of your training rather than what the situ like the fall to the level of the situation. And it's, you know, like if you've at least got some understanding of like a system to check somebody, you know, you know not to run across the road until you've checked for traffic and, you know, or you know how to get out of the way or help the paramedic or whatever the situation is, at least we were, you're kind of opening that people into this sort of thing. And I mean, there's ways you can learn, like trial a bit, you know, like, train up to a certain level but i mean hopefully right. we'll never need it but at least it's there and i think i think that's the great thing about it but i mean my brother-in-law um works in like he's a gas turbine engineer but part of what he does when he's home on his offshore is he works in the mountain rescue service and we get a lot of people because we're in the highlands of scotland who start at the bottom of a mountain and they're like oh that's nice warm so they've got jeans and a t-shirt on they don't realize as they go as they ascent it's going to get colder and before they know it, the weather can change and they're soaked through not got walking boots and all that kind of stuff do you find like like we were talking about earlier about like you know people with situations where there's not a traditional medical infrastructure you know how do you find it's people's stupidity in a way gets them into trouble a lot of times how can we make them realize it's like to prep for it to understand Hopefully you'll never need it, but just have something like a GPS watch, have a, mm. like a bleeding, some gauze strips, have a, like a therm hypothermia blanket, stuff like that. You know, hopefully you'll never need these things or a t even a torch. You know, a lot of people don't have these kind of basic tools. What would you want people to know if they're going to adventures into where traditional medical infrastructure isn't available? and not cause yeah. you to have to go out. <laughs> we're, we're seeing this a lot right now, and I think it's pretty directly related to COVID. Number one, people are sick of being inside. They're sick of you know sitting at their desk now that they're working from home. They've got a little bit more free time, and they're like, I'm going to go experience the mountains. You know, Social media shows us all these awesome uh, videos and photos of like hiking up the mountains, and, and to their credit, they're like, I want to get out and do that, which is awesome. Like Getting outside and enjoying the outdoors is great, but... There's a lot of, I, I don't know if I'd call it, there is stupidity. We see stupidity on a regular, on a regular basis, but there's just a lot of 
ignorance there. And it's yeah. hard to gauge what you don't know because you, you don't know you should know it. So what I would say to people is like, we've got a lot of information at our fingertips. If you're going to a national park or a state park or, you know, some, some kind of wilderness area, my guess is it probably has a website. And on that website, it will probably tell you somewhere on it the kind of things that you need to have. Um, checking the weather forecast before you go do anything outside is huge. And not just checking like, okay, I'm here in Fort Collins, Colorado. I'm not checking here. I want to know what it's going to be like on the mountain. And there are mountain reporting stations that we can look at because that's going to be drastically different. So just understanding those things, understanding that cotton kills. So, you know, your jeans are probably almost entirely cotton. Your The shirt that you have on is almost entirely cotton. And you can hike in those things, but they are not going to insulate you when you get wet. Understanding that, you know, sunset and when it's too dark to see are two very separate things. So understanding that, you know, you want to give yourself some wiggle room there. And then being able to call for help, but also understanding that, Help is a long ways away. Um, even here, so Gray Rock, uh, the one we had the rescue on is, I, I would say it's probably 20 minutes out of Fort Collins, Colorado, which is a, a decent sized city. And with that, you would think, oh, I can get emergency help within 20 minutes. If you called 911 from Gray, Gray Rock, they're dispatching a volunteer SAR team. They're dispatching an ambulance, which doesn't have any special capabilities. And it's going to be probably three to four hours before they get to you. So understanding mm -hmm. that when you go to a remote area, EMS and these, these things that we have come to rely on that we think are going to be really fast are going to be very slow in getting to you. So just being prepared for that, having extra layers, being a little over-prepared. I mean, I over-over-prepare when I pack things. You know, I, I have a huge kit that a lot of hikers would laugh at um, on the trail, but I'd rather go that way than not have something. And I think layer heat signaling and being able to communicate with the outside world is huge. Uh, one of the best uh, uh, pieces of technology that I've experienced uh, in this role is the Garmin inReach. It's such an accessible piece of kit. It's still a little expensive, so I get it. It's out of people's price, some people's price range, but it's like 300 bucks. It's this little orange uh, GPS device and you can link it to your phone and you can send some text messages. So if you want to do like, Hey, I'm on the trail, something you can send that to your spouse. And every time you send it, it's going to give them exact lat longs of your location. But then it also has an emergency feature where you can press that and hold it and it will dispatch, uh, whatever local resources are there to help you. And it links you right up with your search and rescue team so they can triangulate your location. There's no guesswork. They can get a hold of you no matter where uh, you are. And in the last two years, I have seen at least five people's lives saved from an inReach on its own. Awesome. And I think that that is a huge thing and it makes things a lot easier. But it's still going to be ours. It's not like it's instantaneous. You do that, mm. you know, you get a National Guard helicopter hovering over you within five minutes. That's not that's not how this works. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of these services are voluntary, and you know, like um, in I don't know if it's a sort of a US thing, but we have this thing like um, the th like a three name. You know, they kind of broke down basically. I think it's pretty much the world into like one meter squared, and it was. Uh, they give like three names for that area. So you can say it and you can type it into the app, like completely free app, and it'll say it'll take you to that like exact location. And I say to people, it's like, 
you know, people think, oh, I bought a North Face top. You know, like all these fans are there go, but do you know how to use a kit? No. What about your walking boots? I can one trainer, so it'll be fine. You know, like the we're always pulling people out with our four by four and stuff, because you know we use it for the sheep and stuff. And it's, you know, you think if they're so little prepared how to deal with the roads, how are they going to walk when they're hiking or when there's water and there's, you know, like the weather changes? Because like you've got this amazing video, like you have like tips throughout where you said I think it was bring a torch because you can't treat what you can't see. And it sounds so much so sensible that you think, why would you not have a torch? How many people get lost without a torch? Because they don't assume it's going to get as dark as it quickly can. What kits would you have? You know, like you have a great video on building your first aid kit. Like, what would you want people to have as a bare basic? Is it a blood packing kit? Is it like a thermal thing? Is there additional tools and equipment you would want us to have? Like if price was a kind of a concern, like what's the bare basics somebody doing an adventure should have with them? Right. It, it kind of depends on your situation. So if you're going to the backwoods, it's going to be a lot different than if you're taking a cross country trip, uh, than if you're going to Costco or, or a, a grocery store somewhere. So what I would say is, is the bare basics is really going to come down to knowledge. Um, do you have the knowledge to treat things because you can do a lot with very little. So if you don't want to spend any money at all, that's fine. Go get training. Most, uh, local fire departments will probably offer stop the bleed classes. Most, uh, there, there's a lot of free stuff. If you, if you don't have the money to, to go to these classes, if you got to put food on your table and, you know, buying a $30 tourniquet ain't in the cards, get knowledge. And I think that's the first bit. Now, as far as like what you're, what you're packing, I'd say the bare minimum uh, that you should have on you is some kind of Z-folded packing gauze. Uh, that's going to be super, super useful. So uh, for us, like North American Rescue sells them. Um, they're, they're H&H Medical sells them. Uh, Cellox sells them for uh, uh, people on your side of the pond. But you have this gauze can be used for packing those junctional wounds. It can be used for packing the massive bleeding. But then let's say you slip and you hit your head and you've got like a knock and you've got blood getting into your eyes. It's probably not going to kill you as far as blood loss goes, but being able to tie that around your head, stop that bleeding is big. You can use that to tie uh, on a makeshift splint. You can use that. You take a magazine, put it around your arm as a splint if you've got a broken arm and you know, you're self-rescuing from you know, the wilderness, whatever it is, you can use it as, I, I mean, the list goes on on what you can do with it. And yeah. that's the key. And you can buy these things for, you know, I $2, $3 most of the time. I know Cellox is maybe a little bit more expensive, but this plain gauze is just really, really simple um, to get your hands on. And it's going to work great. Now, you want to take that a step up. I'd say, hey, have some kind of quick clot. Now, not the powder, uh, and this is a good lesson, like outdoor stores sell crap products. Not all the time. They have good products mixed in, but like how many times have you gone into a store and you've seen a snake bite kit and it has some kind of suction cup on it? Completely ineffective. Yep. It doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. It can actually cause issues and yet they are still sold in these stores. So quick clot powder is a no-no. What you want is uh, impregnated gauze that has the the um, chitosin or the kaolin inside the gauze that you can apply pressure. So that would be my next step. Now that's getting more expensive. That's in the you know uh, thirty to forty dollar range, depending on where you are. Um, once you have that, you know I'd say you can go for a tourniquet if you want. Um, that's going to just speed up 
uh, uh, bleeding control on extremities, it's going to make it a little bit more of a sure thing that you can get that stopped. You can look at like a CPR mask, something to breathe for somebody. Um, but those things are kind of going to a point where you, you have this, this diminishing returns. Uh, it's, you're going to spend a lot more money for benefit, but it's not going to be the biggest benefit it, it would have been right at first. I love it. I love how it's like, you don't, you know, you don't, it's handy to have it, but you don't need all these amazing tools because the t-shirt you're wearing could solve a lot of hassle. Just the knowledge to understand how to fix it can be the thing that saves somebody's life or, you know, viewing the, the red flags and stuff. I mean, it's, would that be the sort of things you'd have in a home kit? Because something I did notice was there's a lot of these amazing tools and kits, but there are very few people that seem to be doing videos on how to maintain it, how to, you know, like keep the the stuff that needs to be sterile so it doesn't get contaminated, how to like, we used to call it like um, apocalypse boxes during COVID of, you know, like rotating food and that and making sure it's out of date because stuff does go out of date. And you find that it's like suddenly somebody has a cat and they're like, oh, I'll get a plaster. Oh, wait, that's dry. Oh, wait, that's out. Oh, we've run out of this and I've got the empty box. How how do you tell people to build that kit, but also to look after it, to monitor it, to refresh it, to ensure the quality and I don't know the cleanliness even is available? That's hard, and that's where like even I have a hard time sometimes with my home stuff. Uh, so one thing you have to look at is storage. How are you storing what you have and how is it going to be affected by temperature? So medications, if they are kept in a relatively room temperature area that's dry, it's not not super humid or anything, like medication will last far after their expiration date. Now, I'm not recommending anybody use anything after the expiration date, hmm. but I know for a fact that if I had some aspirin from uh, the Cold War, uh, era, it would probably still be fine today because it's not like that, you know, the fairy dust that makes it work has all completely left it. So I think one thing is to like, take it out of your car. Uh, don't leave it in your car winter and summer and let it bake and then freeze, bake and then freeze, because that's going to degrade everything. Even like plastic products, uh, things like gauze, like that's going to start breaking down with temperature extremes both ways. Don't have it exposed to direct sunlight. UV radiation can really break things down. We've had some tourniquet failures where the windlass has actually snapped uh, because soldiers are like keeping it on their shoulder strap of their plate carrier uh, in Afghanistan or Iraq. And we're seeing those fail with the UV radiation. Um, I would say when you get the kit, look at all the expiration dates, because if you're not in a shit hits the fan scenario, you're not in a complete collapse of medical infrastructure as we know it, then you should be keeping things in date. So if you have a list of the next item in your kit to expire, you don't have to check it weekly. You don't have to check it monthly. You know that come January next year, uh, this aspirin has expired and I'm going to go into the kit. I'm going to replace it. And then I'm going to dig through the rest of the kit and find the next thing to expire. So if you just have that written on a piece of tape on the top of your uh, kit, I think that will go uh, well for you, uh, do wonders. And then just also have at least a little bit of a knowledge base on when is something expired and when is something unusable. Um, you know, I don't know about everybody in here, but you know, I got a thing of yogurt in the fridge and if it's two days over it's sell by date, I'm probably still going to eat it because it's okay. But I know that if it's a month over that, I'm probably going <laughs> to avoid it. So just understanding that like, not everything is just like poof, you hit this magic date and it's done. Hmm. Um, 
something like uh, uh, Quick Clot, I see that a lot. That has usually a five-year shelf life and it's expensive. It's like 40 bucks. And it's probably not something you're going to use. Like realistically, you are probably never going to pack a wound in your life if you're not doing it as a profession. So understanding that kaolin is a clay-based material, it's not going anywhere. So yes, the effectiveness might be diminished, but being able to look at that and be like, hey, for five years, let's let it go a little bit longer. I've been keeping it in a good environment. Packaging looks intact, like nothing's wrong with it. We're just going to hold on to it. And I think just having that knowledge base, and if you don't know, Google it, look at, see what other people are saying. Just understand that that's a risk now that you are taking on yourself. Um, and I am not, or, nor ever will encourage somebody to keep something way past the expiration date. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like, they always say, oh, you can't eat that. And then you Google it and it's like, tuna can be eaten anytime you want because it's basically, you know, and you're like, oh, well, okay. And then they're like, you see the number of people who Google, can this be eaten, you know, like two weeks after, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you're, you're definitely a student, aren't you? But it's, I think that's the thing. It's like, like one of my first jobs, I can remember they're doing an audit of the health and safety equipment, and I went to football training that night. I think you guys call it soccer, and you know people are like, "Oh, what were you doing today?" And I was like, oh, "I was making an audit sheet so we could check it when that was out of date, when that needed replaced." And they're like, "Oh, I better go check my first aid kit." And then the next guy was like, "I don't even have stuff in the house. Oh, I probably should get stuff." You know, and it, it kind of that probably stuck with people because it was a discussion that they remembered and. You know, these kind of things stick. But how do you look at mistakes? Hopefully they never happen and hopefully everything's fine resolved and that. But is it like your debrief that, because you said, um, I had to write it, you said you're constantly seeking self-betterment through experience, education, and physical fitness. You know, because you're doing this to be a better paramedic, a better man, better skilled, everyone. How do you kind of look at mistakes when they do happen because you were saying about you know you do a debrief where you show the mission parameters and what went right and wrong how do you learn from this because your mistakes could be bigger than say a mistake i might make in an office you know how, how right. do you come to terms if something does go wrong or you know say you see these people who accidentally give too much medication and you know right. it's because there's so much going on like yeah, I, I mean, so the thing is, is that, um, like I said, I've been doing this for 12 years. I'm kind of, you, you know, this flight medicine here, at least for a paramedic is kind of like, like the pinnacle of where you're going in the career. So I've been doing this for a long time. I, I'm in what would be considered a very high power job and we make mistakes all the time. Like every single flight we go on, there is a mistake made. There's, there's always a mistake. Uh, some are bigger than others. Um, but we have our fair share of med errors. We have our fair share of things that we didn't manage well that, you know, slipped by us. Um, you know, little things, big things, they, they happen to everybody. And I think the first part of it is, is dropping the ego and dropping your defensiveness um, towards somebody calling you on a mistake. I am where I am today and I am the provider I am today because of mistakes I've made, not necessarily because of the triumphs I've had. So for me, those are the biggest learning experience experiences. Um, so really looking at mistakes or times where you feel in your gut, that was not good and looking at it objectively or taking somebody's criticism and not taking it in a way that offends you, but in a way that you can bring away action steps to not let that happen again. Um, 
the reason I carry a lot of what I do in my everyday life is because I've been in situations where I have felt completely powerless, where I haven't known what was going on or mm. haven't been able to intervene. And I looked at those situations and thought, I really don't want to feel that way again. I really did not like how that made me feel. I really didn't like how that followed me. So I'm going to take these steps. I'm now going to carry a tourniquet. I'm now going to carry some kind of CPR mask with me because I don't want to be in that situation again. Um, so that's how we look at it. And like in the professional setting, we do a really cool thing. It's called just culture. So as long as I don't conceal anything, I can come to my boss or our medical director and say, and say, Hey, I made this huge medication error. Um, I recognize I did it and they're going to ask me why. And they're going to look at it from a holistic standpoint and look at all the factors that went into it. And we're going to try to address why that happened and how it can't happen again. So a good example is uh, my partner and I actually had a med error a couple, uh, maybe six months ago. We were flying. It was like 1 a.m. We were flying into the mountains. It was a rough flight. We were both motion sick, landed at the small rural hospital. They were using a med that we hardly ever use, but they wanted it continued. So we did that. We were trying to do a really fast load for this particular patient who is having a, a STEMI, a kind of a heart attack. Um, and through the translation from their IV pump to our IV pump, we got the rate completely wrong on the medication they were get they were given. And we didn't realize it until we landed. We're like, oh, that's why their blood pressure was so weird, because we had this running at like one-tenth of what they did. And with that, what's really cool about the just culture like concept is that there was no like, we're not sweeping that under the rug. I called my boss at 1 a.m. and said, Hey, Jen, we fucked up. Uh we had this happen and, you know, we reported ourselves and what that came down to was a meeting with us and our medical director. And we looked at it and we said, all right, so like, this was our mistake. We didn't triple confirm this med. So like that's on us. And in the future, my action step is going to be doing these three things to triple check the med. And I, you're damn sure I do that every single time now, because that was a really sh shitty situation. But then they looked at it and they were like, okay. So we noticed that in the pumps, you overrode this setting because it wasn't correct. So let's get these programmed correct. So it goes from that facility to this one. Let's rewrite the protocol a little bit to make the conversion, this med math a little bit easier. And then we took that to the group and we presented our mistake to our group and were able to really um, help other people do it. You said earlier in the podcast, if you have a question, Google it because other people have it too. And we presented that mistake. And the room isn't like, oh, dumbasses, why, why did you do this? The room is mm -hmm. thinking, wow, I, that could have really easily happened to me, or I didn't think about this as a possibility or how this is going to affect me. So being able to learn from your mistakes, being able to allow other people to learn from your mistakes is huge and you're going to make them. Uh, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time and I make mistakes regularly. Uh, so it's, fair to assume that somebody that's never packed a wound before, that's never called 911 before, that's never dealt with a stroke, heart attack, they're probably going to make a mistake in care. And if that's you, it's okay. Like at least you were trying to do, trying to intervene, trying to help. You weren't filming it with your cell phone. Uh, if you're filming it with your cell phone, that's a mistake. That's, I mean, you fucked up and there's nothing you're going to do about it. So, uh, yeah. next time maybe get off your cell phone, but with everything else, like just give yourself some grace and try to learn about it and don't jump down the throat of the person that's trying to give you some criticism afterwards. I love that. Cause I've been in similar job environments where it's like, it's never a bad thing. If you own up, 
you say that and then they say okay let's make a system to fix that let's uh, let's fix our training let's change our or like make sure everybody's aware of that so that it doesn't happen to them and it's it's only uh, you only fail it's when you don't learn from it i think you know every mistake is a learning experience and unfortunately a lot of jobs it's like oh you fucking idiot you did it you know if, if you yep. do a mistake where it should be a case of why did it happen okay you know it shouldn't have happened but let's do it and i think that's great it's like top performers they notice something they admit their fault and then they go okay how do i change this how do i make my performance better and you know i mean yeah, like I've done a lot of stupid things and I've looked back and gone, oh, fuck. And then somebody else has come up and said, oh, I would have done that because until you had told me about it. Or And it changes. And I think that's the culture we need to do is be supportive and helpful and adaptive and revi- you know revise it and help each other and stuff. But how do you, because you, you do an amazing work, you, you know, you've saved so many lives and you do, you know, you've helped change law enforcement culture how do you recover like how do you put a self-care policy in there you know how do you make sure you're sleeping right because i I heard one of your videos where you said you struggle with that still you know you're doing graveyard shifts flights all these sort of things how do you make sure you're eating when you're based in a station healthily you know you're not living off coffee and ready meals how do you make sure when you come home or even in between flights that you calm yourself and, you know, because you have an amazing family life. But how do you kind of switch off, recover, be a healthy, emotional person? Yeah, you know, it's so tempting, uh, especially with like my social media, which is focused around what I do for an actual living. Um, It's so easy to fall into that being the definition of, of who I am. And... I really like having hobbies and interests, you know, outside of EMS, outside of YouTube, outside of these things that I'm doing. So that's kind of the number one is like, I don't live to work. Like I, I do, I love what I do. I love coming to work. I like doing the YouTube channel, but I like having interests outside of that, that really have, are, are only maybe tangentially, uh, Uh, related to it. So Hmm. like, I like videography, I like learning new techniques with my camera and filming my kid and, and going to do other things to take my mind, you know, off it and to try to switch off. As far as like, getting the right sleep, like, the honest answer is, is I don't have the perfect answer for it yet. You know, that's still a struggle. That's still something that I'm trying to improve is to get my sleep schedules aligned. We work 24 hour shifts. So two nights a week, I it's anybody's guess if I'm sleeping or not. Um, and then I'm a dad too. So you, you know, you come home and it would be great to go zonk out on the couch for the next eight hours, but that's not, you know, that's just not how life works all the time. So, you know, I, I think trying to optimize what I do have, uh, is huge, you know, making sure that the days off that I have, that I'm prioritizing my sleep, that I'm going to bed early. I like getting up early in the morning. My wife and I are in bed by, you know, 8 PM almost every single day. And we get up at 4.30 AM, you know, even earlier sometimes, but trying to maximize that and understanding that there's things I'm willing to give up to try to maintain that healthy balance. Um, you know, I don't drink. I try to optimize the sleep I do get because, you know, you, you drink a beer and it's messing with your sleep cycle. It's messing with, um, you know, how 
recovering that sleep is, however brief it might be. That's not to say nobody should have a beer um, or, you know, you're lesser if you drink or anything, but that's something that I've decided to give up to try to maximize what I have. And then as far as eating right, um, you know, that I think is the biggest, the hardest thing that I run into in this job because it is so uh, completely unknown what you're doing. We don't have a microwave on the helicopter. So a lot of times you go to the receiving hospital, you run down to their EMS break room and you get a bag of chips and an energy drink, uh, uh, from the fridge because that's all you've had all day. So once again, just trying to optimize what you're doing outside of work has been kind of the best thing I can do, um, in those cases to try to keep some consistency in my life. I love it. Cause it's, it's just showing that you're a normal person, you know, that like that the fear's there, but you you're learning how to deal with it. You know, you're falling back to the level of your training, you know, like that you're, you still go through these kind of like systems because you want to make sure you don't make a mistake. But if you do, you admit it and then you learn from it. And I think that's the beauty of it is like, we think like we see these people and go, Oh, you must be so much better than me. But then when you learn from them, I think it's great and you see that they're fallible but they've learned how to deal with it how to fix it how to be better people it's so inspiring and to see these amazing things you do like you have such a de- like lovely family you know and you seem so smitten with each other like i would love for you to give me tips on how to find somebody like that myself because <laughs> being single just now don't date apps worst thing in the world that's the biggest emotional wound i have just now. <laughs> but you know like what would you want this to be like as a like how do you want to build this brand you know because you know you're saving lives here you're teaching people how to save lives what do you want prep medic to be how do you want people to start using your video how to learn from it because you've got such an extensive library of stuff what do you want people to start using it? To, are you going to bring out courses? Are you going to bring out your own line of like first aid kits and stuff? What's the goal, the end user goal? I, you know, my, once again, it's, a, it's kind of a tiered thing. If this channel does nothing else, I want to bring people into emergency services. You know, there's, I think a lot of people out there that are kind of lacking, lacking purpose. They're in jobs that they, might be making some money, but they don't feel fulfilled. They dread going to work. They dread um, doing what they're doing. And they're not, I think there's a lot of people that have a pit in their soul because they feel like they could be doing something to contribute more. And they're not quite sure where that is. So I want to maybe, I don't want to force anybody into emergency services, EMS, police, fire, but I want to show that as an option um, for people to go into, into a very fulfilling uh, career field somewhere that you can really make a difference within your community and have a pretty big impact on uh, people's lives and be there for them on the worst days of their lives. Mm. I think barring that, if you know that's not in the cards, I think that's totally fine. It's not for everybody, and um, that's great. But I think barring that, I would like to see people use the videos for just having that knowledge base of preparedness, you know, if you can't afford or you're not comfortable going to a class or, you know, it, it's, you, you don't live somewhere where you can get into a class, like having those videos to build a knowledge base, to at least try to intervene when something's going wrong, to make a difference in somebody's life, like actually saving their life um, and letting them come home too. 
their family, I think is huge. And that would kind of be the number two goal, you know, in, in the future, as far as building my brand, you know, this all came by accident. Um, I started the channel with like the goal of getting to a hundred subscribers on YouTube. Um, and that was like, man, if I got a hundred subscribers, that would be freaking awesome, but I'm going to put out these videos anyways. And it's, um, my wife's, uh, dumbfounded that, you know, 450,000 people want to hear me talk. Uh, and frankly, I am too. But with the brand itself, which it has become, I would like to start a kind of a line of medical kits, but not selling the medical kits necessarily, allowing people to look at every component and have a video attached to it of exactly when, why, and how to use this device. Who is it good for and who should keep it out? And then allow people to go down the line and kind of pick what they want as they go because you can go there are so many great kits on the market and honestly i've got nothing better to put in them than um skinny medics putting in his kits or uh you know my medic there's all these companies that are making these phenomenal kits that i'm not going to change but what needs to change is the knowledge base going into them because you can buy a twenty thousand dollar first aid kit with a mini surgical suite and if you don't know how to use it it's going to be completely useless and you could have spent that money, you know, doting on your wife or your kid, and that would have been way better off for your long-term well-being than buying a kit that you don't know how to use. So I really want to start bringing that to people and being able to provide that knowledge um, uh, of the kit. And I want to do that in a way that doesn't have a bunch of paywalls in front of it. You know, there there's a point where I have to recoup costs and, you know, selling a kit and all of that, but mainly knowledge is free and I want to keep it that way on this channel. Um, and... Uh, there are in-person classes and stuff you can do that's free. You can pay for some, but for me, I want to just provide that knowledge and get it to as many people as possible. That's a phenomenal answer. Cause I think you said in one video about how you wanted to teach people to be able to into like, you know, help somebody when they mattered rather than wish they could. And I think that that's such a, an important mission rather than the bloody Kardashians and all these twats, like these influencers, you're, you're helping people. And I love how you're doing it to better people, not to make a fast back. And I think that comes across. Do you think like making your videos, it's almost a relief valve for you as well, as well as helping you become a better paramedic, being a beginner again and learning about videos and, review like how to market and all this and build a channel it's it's letting you learn skills and it's giving you that creative outlet after such a hard job yeah you know i it, i would be lying if i said that this was all completely altruistic and that it's you know all like i get a lot of enjoyment from doing the channel and making the videos uh you know getting the next piece of camera equipment to try to make it that much better um and what i've found for me like the biggest enjoyment is like you get experiences that you wouldn't get otherwise and those experiences have been kind of the most val valuable to me coming on podcasts like this and talking about things you know getting to meet uh really cool people doing cool things and i think that's what i want to impress on people is that i have a a channel and i think i do some really cool stuff but i'm one guy that happens to have a video camera that kind of magically got a following on social media there are people doing way cooler things than me uh, hmm. There are, I, I guarantee you in your local fire department, EMS agency, police department, you have a badass there that has done some really amazing stuff with their life that has done way more than I ever will or a completely different thing. And I think that's what's, that's, what's really cool. Like you're a friend that's a, a engineer, you said, that's also like doing mountain rescue, you know, on our 
volunteer SAR team, you know, you think, oh, they're volunteers. Well, three of them are um, uh, para-jumpers with the Air Force, which is a very elite medical provider uh, in these these combat situations going through a crazy pipeline with like an 80% attrition rate. We've got uh, SEALs on our SWAT teams. We've All of these really cool people are within these realms. And I think one of the next steps I want to do is kind of highlight some of those people and show that it's not you know, what I do is not necessarily unique. It might just be unique to the social media sphere. No, it's a, it's a good way to do it because I think that's the thing is we see a lot of people just doing stuff. You know, it's like, oh, he was rescued by Mountain Rescue, but people don't really understand what they're doing. So maybe opening up to the, you know, like maybe a video on going with somebody who does Mountain Rescue, a video with a firefighter and kind of seeing what they do in a day and kind of opening the education and explaining to people, you know, but, what have you learned about teamwork working with these people? Because, you know, you go in with like SWAT guys, so you have to trust them with your life. You know, you're in a small aircraft, like dealing with people, you have to trust the the medics beside you and the pilot, you know, like even just the guy in the ambulance with you. What have you learned about teamwork, leadership, being a, like a good team player even, or leading people? Yeah. You know, I guess I've learned that there's a difference between trusting somebody with 10 bucks and trusting somebody with your life. Um, and neither one is mutually exclusive uh, for that. As far as teams go, and I think understanding, you know, that people are people, like you were saying there is like, I, I'm a person, I'm very fall- fallible. Um, and then understanding that when I say, like the group that I work with, we're like a family. I don't mean that we're a a always happy functional family. What I mean by that is that we are just as dysfunctional as every family you've ever met. You know, you've got the crazy uncle, you've got the person you don't like seeing. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to be able to overcome that and work together. Uh, no matter how much you dislike the person next to you, or no matter how much you like them, you have to treat every situation uh, uh, the same, at least in a professional manner. So for teams, I think just understanding that there are dynamics there, that there are things that you have to navigate. Um, to be an effective uh, player in these situations. And then trust is not something that's earned overnight. You can get immediate trust with somebody with being like really confident, but that long-term trust building a, a cohesive team like on a flight crew, I, I've had to be in hairy situations with these pilots before I really trust them. And they had to be in those situations with me, see how I interact with patients before they start to trust me. So I think there's a big push right now in a lot of younger people, especially is like going into a workplace and having this instant respect, this instant trust, you know, everybody is going to be super warm to them. And your probationary year as a firefighter is going to completely strip you of any illusions of an immediate trust or bond building uh, because you will be broken down a million times and put in really uncomfortable situations before somebody is able to like fully trust you and and work with you as a professional. So a little bit rambling there. Like, I think for me, the biggest thing is just earn it every day that you can and understand that it's a lot easier to uh, ruin trust than it is to gain it. That's a cracker of a a hint to people. I wish a lot more people understood that. So what would you say then to somebody who is about to go into being a paramedic? I mean, I've got a friend who's a paramedic and she's dealing with stabbings and then she's in car accidents. I had a friend who's in the fire service and one of the things they said in an interview was, 
don't think this is pulling people out and being heroic. A lot of it is collecting body parts after a traffic accident. You know, it's there's that downside. You know, people have this image of like what it's going to be like. What advice then would you give to somebody who's maybe coming out of a university course or just starting, you know, like their beginner service? Is there a message? Is it just kind of listen to your peers, build your skills, get the repetition, the experience? What what else would you say to them? I guess what I would say is be realistic with yourself. Understand that because your if your preceptor says, "Oh man, you got to get out of here. Uh, you're going to get PTSD and hate your PTSD and hate yourself and die alone if you stay in this career," and then you have you know some other guy that's saying like, "You're a hero. Go do hero's work." Is what I would say is nothing. None of that is accurate or fair um, mm-hmm. to this profession in particular. Is that you have to understand that this is a job. Um, there are things you're going to like doing in your job. There are things you're not going to like doing. Some people are going to come away with some mental health issues. They're going to have post-traumatic stress. They're going to have, you know, worsening depression, uh, might develop a habit. And then there's going to be another percentage that are not going to have any of these things. And you're not going to know where you fall in that until you're in the situation. So don't think because you see this one person, they're super unhappy or this one person, they're super happy that that's necessarily going to be you. So what I would say is take the advice of people around you and look at what they're doing and find goals for yourself, but don't get so caught up in what everybody else is doing that you're kind of ignoring what you're actually feeling. Um, You know, if you're not emotionally affected by that kid that died in the car accident, that's okay. Uh, If you are, that's also okay. And you just have to be able to uh, uh, mitigate that in either direction. I think for me, what's given me the most success in this career is finding community needs within the population that I serve as a paramedic and trying to address those on a not emergency level. Uh, we get so wrapped into these emergency calls and all of this that we kind of forget that we can make a difference outside of that. So for me, that was SWAT medicine. I was looking at a, a team that had no medics Uh, We had staging paramedics that weren't going into these hot zones. We were having people that were not getting the care they needed. And I saw that as a community need that I could come in and help out on a lot of different levels. So for somebody else that might be, you know, starting a community paramedic program that might be going to an old folks home and chatting with them and giving them some company once in a while or educating them on when to call 911 and how. So finding some kind of community need that you can embed yourself within the people around you and seeing them in a different light when they're not at their worst, I think is huge. And that will do a lot for uh, longevity within the emergency medical services, at least. Love that, love that. I mean, I've used up far more of your time than I have any any right. I mean, I can certainly see why you've been so successful. I can see how phenomenal your stuff is like you know the how detailed your videos are the quality there and it's just the compassion and the empathy behind it and it's wanting to make people better and that's why i'm always so glad to promote your channel but i'd love to do another one with you later on i've still got tons of questions and (laughs) i know we've covered such a ground and i was trying to avoid going down rabbit holes and stuff like that but what would you want people to take from this as a sort of like if, if if they were to remember, I don't know, like three things or a key reminder from this, is it that we can help people, that we can, you don't need to just watch, you can with some basic training, some basic equipment, you can help somebody till the the, the, the specialists get there? 
What I would say is that anybody listening to this, I would remember that in my 12 years, and I know my coworkers are much the same thing, bystanders have made the biggest difference on survivability on uh, massive bleeding and cardiac arrest. So you don't need anything for either of those things. And if you have just a little bit of training, even if that's just going watching one of my videos or somebody else's, you can actually like save somebody's life and saying save somebody's life doesn't do that justice. Like you are allowing somebody to continue to be a father. You're giving a, a child, their mother for many more years. You're like letting somebody live their life. And that, that is super profound. And that is not something a, a cardiothoracic surgeon needs to do. That is something that you can do with a t-shirt and the knowledge that you have if you have just a little bit of physicality where you can do compressions for five minutes until an ambulance arrives. So I think that would be the biggest thing is to understand you don't need to be a specialist. You don't need to have a huge knowledge, knowledge base or a huge kit list or you know maintain all of these things. You can do a, a lot and make a profound difference with very, very little. I think if that ties into that would be the next thing is, is that the medical infrastructure that and the emergency services infrastructure that you enjoy is not as robust as you believe it is. And it's one bad day away from uh, completely crumbling, not forever, but for the hours that you need it, it might be. So just being aware that you can make this difference and that you might have to make this difference in a, a very small amount of time, I think is also huge. So I think those would be my two takeaway points is don't take anything for granted and get a knowledge base to make a difference in a select number of cases. Beautiful answer. And what would you want people following this now to do? You know, how can we follow you Instagram? How can we follow, like get the courses? How can we like get in touch with you? Um, you know, is like your YouTube channel the, the best way to go? How, how would you want them to get in touch and follow your amazing work? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram. It's prep underscore medic uh, on Instagram or YouTube, which is just uh, prep medic. I have on my YouTube channel, I have a video, uh, a couple of videos that go through the entire Stop the Bleed curriculum, which is a Department of Defense um, program put on here in the United States for life-threatening bleeding for civilians. So that is a great place to start. Um, I also have things on CPR, infant CPR, and choking that you can go check out. And I think that's a, a base level start for you. But other than that, I would look at uh, Stop the Bleed courses in your area. A lot of times they are free. A lot of times fire departments and EMS agencies will put on quick CPR clinics at community events. Uh, even like basketball games, they'll teach you hands-on CPR. So if money's an issue, go find one of those free events or find a firefighter or a paramedic that's willing to walk you through that. Um, so I think that would be the next step because videos are, are great. Like I think that's a starting point, but my content is only part of it. You have to go hands-on. You have to uh, actually do it before that starts becoming a competent skill that you can reproduce. So uh, videos first and then find some hands-on training if you can. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, Embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. 
If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.